0: Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Peace Meal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a the therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we are joined by Val Schoenberg, who is a dear friend of mine. So excited to have Val on the podcast today to explore eating disorders during midlife and menopause, a time when we tend to sometimes not think about eating disorders, but we should be. Val is a registered and licensed dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition science from the University of Minnesota. She is board certified as a specialist in sports dietetics, a certified menopause practitioner with the North American Menopause Society, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Val owns a private practice in Atlanta, Georgia, where she specializes in midlife health and menopause, recreational and professional sports nutrition, all types of eating disorders, and helping individuals break free from dieting and disordered eating. Originally from Minnesota, Val's experience and expertise come from years of practice in many settings, including women's health, eating disorder treatment, Division I, college sports medicine, Professional dance organizations, and speaking regionally and nationally on numerous nutrition related topics. In addition to individual nutrition counseling, she is the consulting dietitian for Emory Sports Medicine and Orthopedics, Atlanta Ballet, and the Atlanta Dream WNBA team. Val is passionate about providing nutrition care to populations vulnerable to disordered eating, and promoting positive nutrition messages that help people make informed decisions about their health and live a life where they are at peace in their relationship with food and their body. Val, we're so excited to have you with us today.
1: I know. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's definitely a pinch me moment because probably the part of that bio that doesn't come out is that Jillian is the one who lassoed me into eating disorders (laughs) to begin with.
0: I'm so proud of that. It was such a good
1: catch. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I was always going to work in women's health, if you remember, but then you're like, no, you need to come work for me. Okay. Great. (laughs)
0: Sounds like a plan. Um, I'm so excited that you said yes way back when. And that your career has just taken so many awesome, awesome angles. And so let's just dive in. We want to talk about menopause. We know eating disorders can affect anyone, any age but there are some life stages that are really uniquely challenging, right? Menopause is one of those stages and one we don't talk about nearly enough. Can you get us started by really explaining how does how does the transition to menopause, how can that increase the risk for disordered eating or eating disorders?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like the way that you posed the question because we have to begin by thinking about menopause as a natural biological event in a woman's life. And I think right now in culture, menopause is having a moment where it often gets medicalized and pathologized as something we need to battle or fix because of some of the symptoms, but actually, you know, it's, it's a lucrative business for folks. And so then these, you know, you have a problem that you need to fix comes along with it. Why we see eating disorders show up is really kind of similar to some of those other life transitions, whether that's puberty or certainly even postpartum or um, just natural biological transitions that on one hand, we see some endocrine changes, right? So there's these wildly dynamic fluctuating hormones and that has an impact on neurobiology and then how that might manifest in terms of mood dysregulation, depression, and then certainly the onset of disordered eating. And when we think of eating disorders, right? That's a biopsychosocial, you know, kind of piece. So the psychosocial factors that we see in menopause or even perimenopause, which is the transitional years into menopause. And then menopause technically is really just your final menstrual period. And then there's those postmenopausal years. But when we think about the psychosocial factors that are happening for women during this phase of life, uh, that's definitely a consider, you know, consideration. The other thing I think on top of all this, why I believe that eating disorders in midlife and beyond are probably not going to go away anytime soon is because we have a prevalent anti-aging message, as well as a lot of weight stigma and weight bias in healthcare, which sadly can contribute to either misdiagnosis or, you know, just really dismissing an individual who does have some disordered eating. Um, and so it becomes a perfect storm for the onset of body dissatisfaction and even fear of eating, like, you know, what's the perfect, correct, right way to eat. And um, in fact, there's a study that came out at the end of 2022 that really documented that those two factors in and of themselves, you know, really are significant contributors to the development of eating disorders. So there's many things happening and it really starts with awareness and, you know, recognizing again that it's it's a natural biological phase of life.
0: Absolutely, that's certainly not talked about enough and to your point really commercialized right like mm-hmm. so many other things that I think are disproportionately gender focused they're like oh this natural thing you're experiencing well we can fix that with some product some supplement we in in nutrition see that so frequently right this magic mm-hmm. thing that can make it better when you think about the folks you've worked with and the literature around this topic how, what types of eating disorders do we commonly see during this, life stage? Are these folks uh, that typically have a history of an eating disorder and it flares back up around menopause or is it a new occurrence for them?
1: Well, I see all eating disorders and I see it both ways. And it could just be because I specialize in this area, but I certainly see individuals with a new onset. And sometimes it's really more along the lines of, if we think of it as a continuum that really disrupted or disordered eating, where this individual comes in And they've really had 30 years of going on and off diets and then starting to help them see that's not really the normal way to live your life and having some exposure around what that's about. Uh, Certainly, and I see women who have been struggling with their eating disorder since the age of 13, 14 or 15, and they're now in their 60s. And then again, I see all types of eating disorders. ARFID is one in particular where women have potentially been struggling with digestive disorders or some other related, like they're not really worried about, you know, they don't have the body dissatisfaction piece, but they have really disrupted eating and recognizing that, wow, we have like an ARFID situation going on here and getting them appropriate support for that as well. Because sometimes these eating disorders get really labeled as to, well, that's just child picky eating or anorexia. That's just a young teenager type of disorder. When in actuality, All of these different types of eating disorders and when they can appear certainly can happen in midlife. One of the things that I found interesting in just my own exposure to the research is that there's a lot of research in the psychology space when you look at the transition to menopause as it relates to depression. And even just the neurobiology of that is really fascinating And so sometimes you can see, say, an individual who maybe had um, some trauma as a young child, whether it's a small T, like not a significant trauma, but something, and even an eating disorder potentially in their young years. And then it went into remission, whether it was the depression or the anxiety, or they just got really busy, right? Started having kids and life happened. And then the kids leave the house and maybe some identity issues show up or stress, and then we see that re-emergence of an eating disorder that they might've had before that they thought wasn't an issue. And I do see that quite often where it's like, whoa, like this was something I dealt with a long time ago, I haven't really struggled with it. And now here it is again. So that also happens.
0: Yeah, that all makes sense that that it's sometimes surprising and sometimes probably resurfacing. and And sometimes I imagine people aren't quite sure what's, happening? Like, what is this thing that's happening? I wonder if that, you know, are there factors that make it really more challenging for, for perimenopausal or menopausal individuals to receive the necessary support they need? Tell us a little bit about what happens that's maybe unique to that time of life compared to other times in life.
1: Yeah. I think this is a really important question as clinicians, we need to do a better job of understanding this and talking about this because You know, we get going along with our normal treatment, appropriately so. So whether we have bulimia or binge eating disorder, really, really intense, severe symptomatology. And, you know, of course, we want to have people go to a higher level of care and get more support. And there's often this pushback. And that's really where I've discovered there are many important reasons that my clients will refuse (laughs) to get a higher level of care and the big thing is the impact of leaving the family like the impact on their kids maybe they have like their child is a junior senior or high school and they don't want to step away and miss out on that phase of you know their kid's life the impact on the work you know some some women are single and this is you know work is kind of their main financial you know, they're the only provider. And so to imagine that we can just go to residential treatment, which might be really appropriate and indicated, isn't something that really makes sense for them. And, and just really being compassionate in that. Other cases, they've been in and out of treatment over the years, and they don't really want to do it again, or so they might be burned out. And I think the other thing I hear from these women or individuals is, you know, just the age appropriateness of the groups and the, you know, what they might see in a milieu. So I had an individual who was a six-year-old who went to treatment and she came back and I mean, it was an appropriate intervention, but she came back and she's like, I did a lot of parenting, (laughs) you know, so, you know, there's a lot of some of the younger individuals and then they're not really still taking care of themselves they're othering, they're, you know, taking and noticing, oh, you know, let me help you with your eating disorder. And then they're really not getting what they need. And it's, I think it's some awareness of how do we have age appropriate care and are sensitive to what, you know, some of the other factors that are happening in life. I mean, the other part, not only just kids at home, but it could be aging parents, right, that they're caring for. And so aren't really able to step away from their life I mean, we can all argue like, oh, but you need to put your own oxygen mask on and you need to get care. And they want to, but that it just isn't realistic. So I think it's
0: it's it's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're the complexities just sort of continue to to grow rather than get simpler as folks mm-hmm. get older. What about, you know, the the impact of menopause? It's a it's a time of of biological change, psychosocial change, psychological change. What in your experience, to, to what degree do people typically receive support for the psychological impact? You know, we hear all these, you know, diet, exercise, and of course, we we love the role of nutrition in lots of things, but we hear a lot of the physical interventions around menopause. What about the psychological support aspects of menopause or perimenopause? Well,
1: I love this question because on the one hand, when we have individuals who are in treatment for their eating disorder. Or an eating disorder, it's been diagnosed, they're getting treatment, they often are getting that psycho, psychosocial or that psychological support. But it's these other women who, you know, have maybe disordered eating, or they just aren't getting treatment for an eating disorder, and they aren't getting that intervention. So they're getting a lot of messaging about what to eat, how much to exercise. And it's really contributing to I guess more distress because they feel more and more frustrated with their symptoms they're struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder potentially an onset of some other problems right like if you're restricting your eating for years at some point this is going to take a toll on your bone health and that's why i see a lot of individuals in the sports medicine and orthopedic clinic that i work at where they're coming in for their bone health concerns And then I have this eating disorder background and I do a lot of appropriate screening and kind of recognizing and then mirroring back for people like, wow, this sounds like there's more going on here. And that we really need to address all the other stuff that's happening in your life and then making sure that we can give appropriate referrals and get people the treatment that they need. So, yes, a lot of it is related to undiagnosed disordered eating or eating disorders and the messaging of just do this diet or just lift heavy weight or all, uh, it's just, you know, unfortunate when women just don't have access to better information.
0: Yeah. It's so is what, I mean, how can providers do a better job recognizing and caring for, for menopausal individuals with eating disorder concerns, maybe they have an eating disorder, maybe they're in a dieting cycle. We know that providers don't get adequate education around eating disorders, lots of efforts in the field to try to change that. But how can providers better recognize and added to that, how can individuals better advocate for themselves, right? They shouldn't have to advocate as hard as they end up having to. And until we can get the provider education to be where it needs to be what are your thoughts on both what can providers do and then what also what can people do when they're feeling like hey there's more I need here and nobody's asking me about it how can they reach out for really making their needs known to their provider
1: yeah well i mean as we know that's hard for many of them like i think we can for the the clients in terms of advocating for themselves it's you know equipping them with some role play and some language and, and you know, legitimizing like, hey, you, you can advocate for yourself um, because often there's this power over dynamic that's happening, whether it's with doctors or their other healthcare providers, and maybe even in the eating disorder treatment team, you know, they kind of fall victim to that. I would say for all providers and especially in the eating disorder community, all of us really need to recognize and challenge ageism and weight bias and you know part of that then is being curious really curious about your own views about aging weight and menopause because i do see a lot of weight inclusive health at every size providers referring clients to me for their for weight loss and you know i'm i'm sure there's some you know translation <laughs> issues happening in the way that comes from the the client But I also get a lot of questions from providers. So like, what's the magic way to, you know, reduce belly fat or how do we lose weight? And that's always fascinating to me. Like, I feel so confused by this question coming from someone who really needs to be aware that there's nothing magically different happening as we go through the menopause transition. I mean, part of it is accepting this is a hard pill for people to swallow, but some people really need to gain weight. And you might not like that message, but that might be a really cardio protective, that might be a protective benefit. And that bumps up against where we've been brainwashed that we should prevent weight gain. And in fact, like just full, you know, you know, transparency, I used to give that message. Like I used to say, oh, it's just prevent weight gain. Oh my gosh, it's such a fat phobic message. And it takes a little while to figure out that what are those fat phobic messages? Like, it's not a bad thing to get old, but we are are told over and over and over, no, 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 no." like longevity and stay young. And so we have to really come to terms and really fully recognize that. I think the other big part in the menopause space is recognize there is no universal experience. So when you recognize how it is experienced differently around the globe, and the different socioeconomic status, education level, cultural attitudes around midlife and aging and menopause and how women are respected or not respected there's so many other factors that come into that but i think for all providers and i would hope even more so you know from the healthcare pl- place of we just really have to set this weight issue aside and focus on what's in the best interests of the client and the patient
0: Absolutely. That is, I want to live in that world with you. That is a great place. Come join me. (laughs) How do okay. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about nutrition specifically, because I think there's this balancing act that we want to help people understand that, you know, there are nutrition interventions that can be used to manage menopausal symptoms that might be really helpful, but how do we, what interventions can be used to manage symptoms that don't inadvertently contribute to disordered eating?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a tricky question because, on the one hand, there are some things that we need to be aware of. But, you know, healthism as a concept, I think it's a really, this is where some of that, you know, lucrative part of menopause is coming into play because then it's supplements and all these other things. When we say, well, here's the nutrition you need, here's the perfect, perfect, correct, right way to eat, even intuitive eating. Like I'm, I, you know, I believe intuitive eating is foundational to where I wanna move individuals to. But then we get really, you know, kind of rules-based in terms of what's what's the correct way to, to manage that. Well, here's the reality. Some women have really intense cravings as they go through the menopause transition, just in terms of what's happening with those fluctuating hormones on the hypothalamus and those different regions, where you're not sleeping at night and that can impact maybe hunger cues. Or the flip can happen as we get older where we lose our appetite, you don't feel hungry. I mean, we know if you look at the geriatric literature in terms of, you know, we don't want people losing weight, and that becomes a real issue. So I think on the one hand, it's you know, really recognizing intuitive eating as an overall concept and approach, but it's also individualizing our care. So what are the symptoms we're concerned about? And even the same recommendation would come from a gynecologist or should come up from a gynecologist if they're approaching like menopause hormone therapy. It really needs to be individualized. So soy foods, for example, from a nutrition standpoint, might be a really meaningful intervention for someone struggling with hot flashes and night sweats. I mean, it's a high quality plant protein has many other benefits. But what if you don't like soy protein? Then, are, then oh my gosh, like shame on me. I'm not gonna be doing the lifestyle intervention um, that's gonna help my hot flashes. And so it's really understanding what's going on for this person. I'm again, super into bone health. it's a big area for me. So I'm always assessing for, you know, calcium intake and protein intake. And I'm always like curious, like, well, why aren't we eating dairy foods? <laughs> like, what is that about? Where did that food rule come from? and you know sometimes they just don't like it or they know they don't tolerate it okay fine then let's just find some other calcium containing foods so it's really squaring away someone's nutrition first and foremost versus having some super food that's going to fix your menopause symptom or even more so a perfect weight or weight loss or exercise i mean that's a big one that i'm seeing coming like well, you need to do this type of exercise and it's like well some people don't have time or you were up all night with night sweats and you know nocturnal awakening i'm sorry you're not going to be able to go lift heavy weight in the morning <laughs> you're a little tired so it's really really that compassion and sensitivity to what what this individual is struggling with and what we do know and that's where i think we can you know sometimes use medical nutrition therapy interventions and sometimes we just really need to be sensitive what what makes the most sense for this individual
0: Absolutely. I love how comprehensive that is in terms of really recognizing the person where they are and and what is, yeah, there's recommendations on paper, but you're right. What if you didn't sleep last night? You're really not going to bounce out of bed and be like, let's go do the thing when all you want to do is have had a good night's sleep. And That thing isn't necessarily going to be you know, as restful.
1: Yeah. And there might not be a magical or good intervention for resolving the sleep issue at that time. With that in mind though, I think this is really an important area where I like to partner with other providers is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and night sweats has like level one evidence. It's super interesting. It's what I've used for myself. There's like kind of a self-help book that I really like, and it's really meaningful. And that is, you know, a great example of where we can partner with therapists or, you know, the EMILY program could have like a menopause CBT group for night sweats. <laughs> and, and then there's a lot of support around that and it has good efficacy. So, you know, and it's it's skills and tools that you can carry into other areas of your life. So like if I'm laying awake for two hours at night, I don't get myself all worked up that the next day is going to be absolutely horrible. And it's, you know, so it's that some of those strategies that you use to keep yourself calm so that the endorphins aren't being kicked in that keep you even more awake. So it's just something to kind of consider and think outside the box.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is, it's really recognizing that it's, it's not just as simple as, you know, do this or do that. And it also has the uh, complexity behind it of, right. You can be impacting your, your physiological state by how you do think and manage during those situations? What am I thinking? How can I take care of myself? How can I really help this to be less of an impact than it could be otherwise? I love that that approach. And what about I know there's not a, a, a perfect answer for this, but what could we all do, I think as, as providers, as as you know, people to support ourselves to support menopausal individuals, to support our society in really addressing issues related to, to the body image and self-esteem to, to your point about ageism, uh, really well-made that, that we sort of have this built in peddled to us ageism message. And with that, you're, you know, not only supposed to not age, but you're also supposed to, you know, look perfect doing it. And perfect is defined in, in different ways. How do we help individuals address that within themselves? And and what techniques have you found helpful to to really equip people who are struggling with managing their relationship with their body?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's probably been the trickiest thing to figure out as you know, just in my own career, right? And in the work that I do is to really feel safe and comfortable in the room with a woman sitting across from me who's extremely distressed in her body, that I don't have to feel like I have to fix this because that certainly can sometimes come up. And so even from that place to be really, really stable in my own relationship with my body and how I feel about age and menopause, then I feel like we can come into that space and just really validate like, man, this is hard. Like I can, I can see your distress. I understand how confusing this must be to have experienced this weight change and this body shift when all these other things are going on in your life. And some of it is just validating, right? Like, okay, this really sucks. And instead of, well, you know what, you just need to wake up and be positive about your body and just accept this. So I think some of the, I am a big fan of body positivity and body acceptance, and I do a lot of work with that. But the bridge to get to that space is really, really starting from a place of, you know, walking side by side and just looking at it, validating it, kind of sitting in the muck together and saying, well, what can we do here? Like, what can we control? You know, all this stuff about yourself what you've done or tried you and and I think the other part of it is well what you know and I know we do this in body image work at all ages but really to understand and help that individual come to some awareness of what is the meaning behind the shift in your body or weight like what are we really afraid of what are we really experiencing in our body what are we holding in our body so the whole concept of embodiment and this is often really new for women at this age where they maybe wrestled with it for years and years and years and now feel really uncomfortable or they never wrestled with it. I mean, I think sometimes I see women who kind of like quote unquote, never had to worry about their weight even more distressed because it's like, wait a second. I never had to worry about what I was eating. I didn't worry about exercise and now my body's shifting and changing and this is not okay. Like, what do I do now? And that is really kind of helping them, you know, just sit with it a little bit, you know, how do we manage distress when we're uncomfortable? And, and more importantly, then it's shifting to, okay, so yes, we, we can hold this space of, this is really uncomfortable. This is confusing. You know, here's what we can control. And then who are you? Like, what are your values in life? What really matters to you? What are passions and causes you believe in? And, you know, that's a way what I say to change the mental channel, like instead of talking yourself out of feeling really icky about your body, let's start thinking about something else. What else matters for you? And I, I, I think that's one of the ways that we can help women, you know, move beyond. But then we have to challenge ageism. Right. And so that's that other part of, yeah, but I'm not valued anymore. You know, kind of that idea that we're not worthy um, once our ovaries have failed, like, oh, that's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Really leaning into the the wisdom that, that people hold at that time in life and mm-hmm. what they do have. And you're right. It's so, it's, it's so easy to fall into that rabbit hole of, oh, it's different now. And it feels like I can't do anything about it. And now it feels, uh, this just happened to me. And why is it happening? And how can I manage it? And how can I get back a sense of mastery and really Diving into what well, what does it mean to have this change? and what are you afraid of? And what are the things that that you might be telling yourself that maybe aren't that true, and what are the supports you can put into place? and the the simple and the and and mm-hmm. the more complex and the sort of small and the large uh, that really do make a difference.
1: Well, and the other, I mean, just to kind of jump in on that too, I mean, this not a whole thing what we can unpack right now, but it is fascinating when you even look at the history of like the patriarchal impact on the development of hormone therapy, how women, you know, were told like, hey, you should be taking Premarin because that's a way to make sure you stay lively for your husband. And, you know, if you look back and unpack some of that messaging, that's fascinating. And, and that this idea that menopause is a hormone deficiency disease Which, you know, we are trying to normalize menopause um, and I think there's conflicting viewpoints like right on the one hand we want to normalize menopause this is a normal biological event, but those who want to make menopause a lucrative space are going to sell you the idea that this is a horrible time in your life, that you need to fight this process and here's all the products you can buy to do that. And that's what keeps that narrative going of, yes, you need to look a certain way. You shouldn't be having your body change. It's really, I mean, I don't know, like, I think the more we can educate and help people understand this subliminal messaging that's there, then I think it gives us back a lot of our control too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and really helps to kind of thread that needle of the middle way where, yes, this period in, t- in life has some discomfort, might have some discomfort associated with it. And there are ways to help ease that discomfort. It doesn't mean that it's terrible, horrible. You're not valuable anymore. It doesn't mean that you have to feel like this forever. It's, it's a thing that happens in life and helping people to understand or to, to have a set of skills to manage like, oh, this is a thing that happens. And it's, it's a, it doesn't have to be overly medicalized or overly productized sure, that's not a word, (laughs) that we can find a way to support ourselves and each other as people with a thing that happens. There are other things that happen in life that we have supports to manage that instead of making it something that women feel like they have to suffer through or can't talk about or have to respond to in a certain way or only good enough if they're buying or doing or demonstrating something, it is a It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating um, whole topic. When I think about all of the work, you know, that we've done in eating disorders together for so long that that at different times of life, our society has managed to make people feel worse or bad for different reasons, you know, this, the, the sort of cynical side of my brain says, wow, what a, what a creative world we are, where we can make people feel bad multiple times through their life for normal things that happen in their bodies and really giving people back the power to say, no, this stuff that's happening with my body is normal. And I can have supports that I don't have to feel it as a deficit or something that I have to like hold off and stop. It's for Yeah. Me.
1: I think though, when it comes to hormones, which is a really complicated topic, that gets simplified and, you know, kind of that you need to balance your hormone message to fix everything. Uh, that's really where a lot of this gets hijacked again. And it's just so rampant that, you know, women, I, I think that's one of the reasons that women get confused. And even, you know, I do like a, kind of a consultation group for clinicians to really help bring everybody on board and up to speed. Like, here's what you need to know. And then let's talk about this. And this is a common question among many dietitians and other providers, which is, okay, so, but is it okay that we're telling people that, you know, they might have this belly fat, like, you know, we don't want to give bad messaging. We don't want to do a harmful message. And I think that There is that part of we want to do right by our clients from a health standpoint. So it's, you know, just, oh, don't worry about it. Um, No one really wants to get that message. But on the flip side, there's always going to be this. You need to prevent weight gain. I mean, there's a lot of mixed messaging. It's very confusing to our clients. And then especially those with eating disorders, um, it can really add an extra problematic layer to how they are trying to recover or work through their, their eating disorder too.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's, let's wrap up on that note. So what, what sort of last word of hope or insight would you give to, to menopausal individuals struggling with an eating disorder?
1: Well, what I would say is I really believe that recovery is possible for everyone. And sometimes that's something that they start to struggle with. Like, I'm just going to be this way forever. And I always remind them that like, I can hold that hope for you. I, I genuinely believe they can recover. And there's a number of reasons that at this stage of the life, um, there can be a different motivation and a reason to embrace their recovery. I also have come into this space on my own, you know, to to really believe that aging and growing older is one of the best gifts in life. And if you really can shift your mindset to think about that that way, like I'm I'm an old person, I'm glad I'm getting older. Hey, women have evolved to live well beyond their ovarian status, even if you do have some visceral fat, right? Like, I mean, what we can sit and argue about it, but the reality is we're living a really long time. And it's not like, it's only recently that our bodies have magically kind of gone through menopause. And then the final part of that is that women- really have an important role in contri- in contributing to society. I mean the fact that we have evolved this is kind of this grandmother hypothesis is that we have a purpose. And I want to help women, you know, reclaim, you know, their purpose, their wisdom and dismiss all these societal views of aging and weight and really come into um, that that we 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 have an important purpose in terms of even the younger generation. And helping them see, hey, we can age with lovely grace. We don't have to do any magical, you know, pills and injections or anything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's probably my, my mindset and how I hope that I can spill some of that energy over into the people I work with.
0: That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for yeah. spending some time with us today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com, or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.